0: I've experienced like lack of sleep, a lack of appetite, uh, an inability to properly switch off, you know, it is, um, you're under pressure. And, you know, you feel very accountable to your employees, you know, you've got to look after them as well at the same time.
1: Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to recommend a brand new podcast to you. Happy Millionaire is hosted by longtime podcaster and early stage founder, Repeat Orchler, and serial tech entrepreneur, Jay Radia. Each week, the pair join big names in the UK startup scene to break down the strategies and principles used by successful startups. Recent Happy Millionaire episodes reveal Amazon's perfect meeting formula, teach you about spotlight syndrome and how it can hold you back, and tell you the three best places to find a superstar co founder. You can listen to Happy Millionaire on all popular podcast platforms. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Joe Robinson, the CEO of Improbable Defense. Improbable is a British metaverse technology scale-up and unicorn that partners with video game developers, entertainment companies, and defense institutions to help them bring to life rich, powerful virtual worlds of unprecedented size, scale, ambition and usefulness. I've had the great pleasure of working with Joe as a client, but can't proclaim to be an expert when it comes to the metaverse. So I'm really looking forward to finding out more about how improbable are bringing tech and innovation to the defense sector, especially given the instability in the world at present. So Joe, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you again. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm very well, thank you, James. Yeah, nice to speak to you too. I can't claim to be an expert on the metaverse, but I shall try my best to, uh, yeah, to, to talk a bit about it.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to digging into that in a bit more detail. But before we start, we always like to kick off and warm you up with some quick fire questions. So, if you could finish the following sentences after me, that would be great. My first ever job was I was a hotel porter. That was
0: my first ever job, and it was doing lots of lots of various bits from waiting tables to carrying bags to fixing televisions to restocking bars yeah it was a it was a bit of a jack of all job but um no i loved
1: it and yeah it taught me a lot about customer service uh, it's so important Ashamed to admit it and i think i've said this on the podcast once before i lasted one day in a hotel in leeds when i was at university because i I went out the wrong door and I opened the fire fire escape and it woke up all the guests. So uh, I didn't last very long. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed your your experience. <laughs> awesome, right? Number two, brilliance to me means. Do you know what the
0: the first thing that's jumped into my head is sport actually, and not business. When I think of brilliance, I think of Rafa Nadal playing on a clay court or Alistair Cook's cover drive or. Mike Tyson's left hook, Carl Lewis running, like the, the things that make your hair stand up on the back of your neck when you see, you know, sort of brilliance in action in a live space. But I love sports, so it's a real um yeah, that to me was the first thing that jumped to my head. I think bring it back to business, I think people who do the basics really well. And when I talk about the basics, I what I'm really what I'm really referring to is people who do what they say they're gonna do. They have a an ownership attitude, they, you know, they own results and outcomes. They focus on building fantastic teams and invest in their people and, you know, and, and, and get their people to really feel a sense of motivation and purpose behind what needs to get done. They're effective at prioritizing and they put the sort of the needs of the business at the front of their mind, the needs of the customers at the front of their mind. I think these sound like such simple things, but I think in a really busy world and in, in, a, in an increasingly sort of busy workplace, doing those basics really well, I think, count for a lot.
1: I love both those answers and I couldn't agree more. I think, um, yeah, I, c- I can sometimes forget about the basics and, and and it sometimes really helps to differentiate the great from the good I've found and um, particularly running sort of exec searches. Some of the very best are very good at continuing to do the simple things, but that really make a difference. So I love that answer. Thank you. A misconception people have about me is? I think maybe this applies to a
0: lot of people in leadership positions that perhaps we we sort of know the answer to everything, you know. When you sort of you, you communicate to an organisation, you you have to do it with confidence and and real conviction and belief in in what you're, you know, the, the the kind of direction you want to take people in or the the points you want to get across. But almost always, the ideas I'm communicating are a result of you know asking other people their opinions, and you know, and trying to pull together kind of collective knowledge from a leadership team and and trying to to listen and, and to assimilate information and then come up with a with an outcome I think perhaps it's yeah you know, it's a misconception that that leaders that we sort of know the answer straight away which I you know I, I think is um it's not the well, certainly not the case with me <laughs> you know I've got I've got a I've you know I've got a, team. I've got a you know I've got to lean on them to, to help navigate the to and throw of, of
1: business I think that's critical. No, that's that's very true. Thank you. And finally, can you share something we wouldn't know from your CV? So that could be a failure, a big setback in your career, but something that you've learned a lot from.
0: So I think I mean it's a relatively personal one, but I but I um I was sort of critically ill uh, when I was a bit you know younger, about sort of ten years ago. And you know, it was a real a real sort of personal setback for me. And, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me sort of who my who my friends really were. It taught me about the importance of kind of mental resilience and how to kind of be comfortable in your own company and reset the expectations on yourself as an individual when you're sort of prioritizing living first as a kind of baseline and then, you know, kind of working beyond that. So um, I'm not unique in that regard at all. I mean, a lot of people in in the sort of young people do face these sort of health crises at different points. But I think that that shaped a lot of my sort of perspective and, and outcomes on career and growth as an individual.
1: Oh, well, thank you for sharing um, such a personal story. And I think that's um, really interesting, really insightful, and hopefully gives a lot of hope to anyone listening to this that might be going through a similar situation. Well, thanks, Joe. I really feel we, we've got a, a very interesting insight into you and in the way you think about things. But um, going back to the earlier parts of your career then, you spent 10 years working in the MOD, including stints in operations and intelligence, which is a really unique and interesting place to start a career. So I'd love to dig into that time. Did you always want to work in, in the defence industry? Can you tell us a bit more about how you ended up there and a bit about the roles that you undertook?
0: So did I always want to join the military no but I remember um, you know vividly 911 and I remember the you know the the circumstances surrounding that the impact on on the world and it really you know I'd always, always sort of considered potentially a, a military career but I was never kind of all in and then when when that event happened it it really galvanized something in me and and made me think that actually I wanted to to contribute to the security of the UK and, and as I learned a bit more about the military opportunities to play sport, opportunities to receive world-class training and personal development and to sort of go, sounds very cliche, but kind of go in and see the world and and work as part of a, you know, an elite team. Um, that sounded like something that was sort of right, right up my street. So, um, yeah, so that was really, there were a couple of events that sort of came together that, that made me want to, want to join. And I did, uh, I did sort of cadets, uh, at school and, and, and um, I was involved in the reserves when I was at, at university. So, so I kind of had a bit of a military thread running and I've got a number of service personnel in my family and uh, not my immediate kind of family, you know, grandparents and, and the like. And so there was always a bit of a history there as well. So I think there are there a combination of factors, but world events was certainly the biggest galvanizing factor. To be really frank, I wanted to go out and fight for the country. Wow, amazing!
1: Yeah, and I, I, I mean it's a great reason. I remember that time very well, and it was maybe not dissimilar to now, where there's some real instability in the world, and yeah, I can totally see the appeal of that. What were some of your biggest learnings from your time in the military, and perhaps some of the biggest challenges that you had to to face? Yeah, I mean that's um,
0: God, we could talk. Yeah, we could talk a lot about that. I mean, I think to try and sort of relate it back to experiences that maybe people who haven't got a military background could sort of, you know can sort of relate to. I think um one of the things the military teaches you is the, the power of a team dynamic. You know, the 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 need as a you know I was an officer, so essentially a manager of of a you know group of people going up through different levels of of command as it's sort of referred to in military, but you know, you would know it as management or leadership roles and you know it taught you to look after your people to understand their skill sets understand their career ambitions and to really work out how to get the get the best from them so i think that was a that was a resounding kind of certainly had a kind of resounding impact on me i think perhaps the the other element is it sort of gives you perspective the military i joined at a time that was very operational you know we we, we spent a lot of time fighting a lot of time in operations and i had friends seriously injured i had very good friends killed and so it gives you a perspective on life, a kind of verve for life that perhaps you don 't have when you haven 't had to haven 't had to fight for it and going to places in the world where people are desperate and impoverished and under threat and scared you know terrified uh, frankly sometimes that again gives you a real perspective on what matters in life and you know kind of the privilege and, and the the stresses that we think we're under in in our kind of daily lives and the privilege that we experience and recognizing that actually, you know, we've got it pretty good compared to other parts of the world. The final thing I'd I'd say is is probably the importance of a mission and being able to get behind a mission. You know, when you're trying to motivate uh, a team of people to, to go out and put themselves in harm's way, and they fully understand the very real kind of risks to them, the importance of that mission, the purpose, what you're there to do, is a North Star, you know, it's a real galvanizing factor in being successful and, and ensuring that, that, that everyone's focused around the same goals. So um, I think, you know, mission, purpose, a setting effective goals and, and being really specific about the goals that you want to try and achieve and what achievement and success looks like. That's something that, that the military instills. The final thing I'd say is planning, you know, being able to, to military's really good at, at planning, you know, they're very, very good at sort of thinking through consequences and being quite strategic. And it taught me a lot about how to
1: think about strategy that 's really fascinating answer. Thank you, Joe. I think the military is a place that you need a lot of resilience, you need a lot of emotional. Um, intelligence but also strength uh, and you've already demonstrated naturally that it's something you have in abundance perhaps also as partly because of the um, you know the health scare you had but for people listening to this do you have any advice for anyone that that may be looking to develop their resilience maybe they've had a tough time recently what are the things that you may have learned from your time in the military or or in your career to date that, that you'd maybe pass on as some words of advice uh, or tips
0: yeah so i think the, the first thing i say is is resilience is hugely important you know, I mean, it, it's a quality that I, I massively value in employees and it's a combination. The way I would describe is it, it's a combination of ability to be comfortable in uncertainty and be able to a kind of cliche would be roll with the punches. But it's more a case of being able to be comfortable with change. And accept change when it when it comes, and embrace change, and see opportunity in change. So, so that's the way I would think about it: comfort and uncertainty, and an ability to kind of accept and, and see the positives in change. I think one of the ways to, to build resilience is really first and foremost through empathy, understanding where other parties in a tough situation, where are they coming from? What is motivating them? Why is the situation as it is? In tough circumstances, we can very often immediately seek to look at things through our own eyes. And I think it's always important to kind of take a beat and say, OK, well, where are the other parties coming from in this situation? And, and therefore, how can I start to build a positive you know, a a positive outcome based on a kind of tough circumstance. And I think empathy naturally builds a sense of resilience because once you've been in that situation, you can understand different people's perspectives. You can start to build up the muscle memory of actually how human beings respond in difficult circumstances and then look to sort of get the best out of them. And you can anticipate what's going to happen. And I think that helps to cope with change. So I think empathy is incredibly important. I think humility is incredibly important as well to building resilience, like recognizing where you, you're you finding it tough and where you don't have the answers and and having people around you that you can you can put your hand up and say, look, I'm, I'm not really okay with this and and I need some help. I need, you know, I, I'm, I'm really kind of finding this difficult and being able to express yourself. And, and that, you know, I think that ultimately then that boils down to an environment where you feel safe, you know, psychological safety is the, the kind of classic terminology for this, but I'd make it really simple. It's just an environment that you're safe to put your hand up and say, God, this is this is hard, isn't it? You know, it's a difficult environment we're all in. And I think as a leader, you've got to call that out often. You've got to say, look, what we're doing is really difficult. This is painful. This is going to hurt us. This is going to be a difficult situation to get through. and accept that and embrace that and kind of get over that and then say, but look, you know, we're going, to, we're going to do it together. And these are people's perspectives. This is the goal we're trying to achieve. And then kind of get people invested in that plan to, to kind of build on. So I think there are a number
1: of layers here to being resilient, but I think it starts with empathy and humility. Uh, Yeah, I love that answer. There's so many things in there that I completely relate to and I think will be very useful for our our audience. Uh, And I also think in a time like now where we're heading into a recession, there is lots of uncertainty out there if everyone listening can take some kind of a slightly reframe the challenges of the times ahead see some positives in that change kind of look to embrace some of the uncertainty because some of the best things some of the best companies come out of difficult situations and uh, I think it's, it's it's always good if you can build that that resilience to get through times like this and come out stronger out the other side I think I think your advice is, is super helpful in that respect I guess from from the things you've described you obviously took so much from your time in the military and already I think anyone listening that might be thinking about a career in it, you could see all the benefits of that. And it's obviously led towards a fantastic role in the tech ecosystem at at, at Improbable. So it feels like a good time to come on to that. I know you started in a a government relations role before ultimately becoming the CEO of Improbable Defence. Before we get into the the nitty-gritty of your role currently... Can you tell us a bit about what improbable is for those that don't know or haven't heard of it before and and what role it plays in defence and I guess why you're ultimately attracted to it?
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Improvol is a metaverse company. So we build new types of virtual experiences and we enable the building of new types of virtual experiences for the gaming and entertainment industry and on my side of the business for the defense and national security community. So what does that actually mean to, to our customers in the defense and national security space? Well, the threat landscape, so the, the the international environment, has only got more complicated. And and James, as you said earlier, you know, frankly, the world is quite an unsafe place at the minute. And our governments and our defence and intelligence community are finding it really difficult to understand this new complex landscape where you have major power competition. So nations doing you know, really dangerous things in the world. And we clearly see that in Ukraine with Russia, but also some of China's activity in other parts of the world as well. There's been a massive rise in, in cyber activity, cyber crime, cyber attacks, and, and the weaponization of the internet in those terms, which includes social media, disinformation activity, election meddling. So there's lots of, of threats that are quite new. They happen very, very quickly but you also need to understand still how to face off in a military way against you know, conventional threats. So now you have what the Americans refer to as full-spectrum conflict. And in the UK, we call that multi-domain conflict. So where lots of things are happening on lots of different levels, really hard to get your head around it. It's happening really, really quickly. And then on top of being able to understand it, you've then got to build a response, that 's effective so you 've got to train your soldiers and your service personnel effectively to understand and respond to this stuff you 've got to build better plans you 've got to be able to orchestrate operations in a way that that is faster than the bad guys and, and creates a kind of better outcome for you and Really, you know the, the only way to do that is to is to recreate that complexity in a virtual world, so to take a lot of that complexity of the real world to recreate it in this sort of mirror world. And then start to use that that virtual environment that synthetic environment, as defense calls it, or you know virtual world, as perhaps you and I would refer to it, to try stuff out before you do it in the real world. you know I want to kind of train my troops in this environment I want to get them used to this type of experience and, and mix kind of the live environment with this this sort of virtual environment and I want to be able to test plans and ideas I want a war game i want to I want to understand you know the consequences of my of my strategies before I then go and do them in the real world. Because if I get them wrong, the consequences can be terminal, they can be terrible. So that's what we really do. That's what we do in the defense and and the intelligence communities. We provide our national security community with these software products that enable them at different, through different missions and through kind of different lenses to create synthetic environments that recreate the depth and the scale and the richness of the real world and then update and modify those worlds very quickly so they can ask questions, test plans, refine strategies, and and ultimately you know, deliver better outcomes to keep us all keep us all safe.
1: Wow, I mean, it's one of the most unique companies I'm aware of, and, and you can really see how much of an impact it's having, and uh, clearly Improbable being a unicorn has had huge success over the years. So um, firstly, massive kudos to you for all you've achieved. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far but before we continue hearing from today's mentor i wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors alchemist alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity alchemist presents LD departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40-minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40-minute mentor. Before we come on to talk a bit more about the metaverse, which I'm sure our listeners are going to be really interested in, just coming back to you, Joe, I mean, you've clearly made the transition from the military into the tech world and you've then you know moved roles to become a first-time CEO I'd imagine there are people listening potentially from military backgrounds that are maybe transitioning now or kind of have their eyes on the top seat at some point in the future can you tell us a bit about how you personally have made those transitions and what helped you along the way have there been any particular challenges that you faced or, or advice you'd give to anyone else kind of on that journey now?
0: I think the first thing to say is that, you know, CEO is probably the worst defined job of all. You know, it it doesn't really have a kind of a fixed job description. You're ultimately accountable for the business's performance across all verticals of of the business. And on the other side of things, when things are going badly, you know, it is your fault at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops with you. So So there's that ultimate level of accountability. But you know there isn't really a kind of formalized training for the role and i think in a in a tech startup that's sort of amplified because you know things you move very very quickly you know if you're a venture capital backed business you're you're always in a race you're in a race not to run out of money not to run out of time you've got to find product market fit for for a technology that that no one's ever heard of before and you know solve problems that that frankly have, have never been properly solved before and you then have to sort of, you know, capture the market, scale the business, sort of add to the business side to the technology side. And that's very difficult. And, and I think that, you know, if you read accounts from other leaders, other executives, you know, that there is this sort of constant sort of fear and anxiety. And, um, you know, I mean, I've experienced like lack of sleep, a lack of appetite, uh, an inability to properly switch off, you know, it is, um, you're under pressure. And, you know, you feel very accountable to your employees, you know, you've got to look after them as well at the same time. So, so I think that if I was going to sit like, what is the one most important skill? Like, and, and I'll, I'll quote Ben Horowitz on this one because it, because he, I think he absolutely nailed it. He's one of our investors and, you know, f- fantastic guy. And I totally agree. I think the most important CEO skill is, is essentially preventing your own impending psychological breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you basically need to learn how to cope. You need to learn self care. You you need to you need to build you know a, a team of fantastic people that you can lean on. Grow a network that that can support you. You need to be a master of your own time because you'll never have enough time. You'll always have too much to do, and so. You've got to ensure that you're providing that time to get the balance that you need to prevent yourself from, you know, from making bad decisions because you're finding the environment tough. I think mentors really help people you can bounce ideas off that you trust. Also accepting, I think that the reality of any advice you get you need to take that in, but you need to also recognize that you're the one who has to make the decisions. You know, you can never kind of pass off decision-making and accepting and owning that is is very important. And then I think, you know, I mean, this is, this is sound, re- coming back to the basics again, this is going to sound really crazy, but I think some of the most effective senior leaders and CEOs I've seen, they know how to work. And again, that's like, I guess it sounds really, like really basic, but in my mind, like knowing how to work are things like, like I said, mastering your own time, Understanding what needs to get done, so being able to effectively prioritize and focus and you know and only focus on like a maximum of, of like two things at once you know if you try and do three or four things once you, you know you're just gonna you're not going to be able to do it understand the things that only you can do so being in a position where you know you you're taking on the things you know and you're owning those things that only you can do and then and then effectively delegate and manage the rest of those tasks on your list and then I mean the final thing I'd say is and I'm a big believer in you know and I know he's a very old he's a very old sort of historical management consultant but Peter Drucker and his perspective on this and you know the most important advice I think you can get from reading Drucker is understanding the difference between what you need to do and what is right for the business you know these are not the same you know, as a CEO you need to do what's right for the business always so you know what decision overall is right for the business so not for your employees not for your shareholders not for your customers but holistically what is what is the right answer and i think that that requires courage and it requires a sense of being able to really ask yourself that question before you make any decision. Because if you don't ask yourself that question before you make a decision, you are always, almost always wrong. You know, I think CEOs have got to be the master of this question. What is the right thing for the business? Because they have a perspective and a knowledge of the situation which is fundamentally different from everyone else. But it's difficult because you're pulled in lots of different directions. And that's why I think it takes a bit of courage. And I don't mean sort of the kind of courage you have to experience in the military that's you know that's that's real courage i'm talking about sort of you know courage in business to try and do do the right thing and i think that you know that's the sort of perspective that that one needs to yeah that, that one needs to take as a as a CEO and and kind of own that question, you know, what is the right thing for the business? And and that question is almost always a hard one to answer.
1: Yeah. No, thank you, Joe. That's such a comprehensive answer. And I think very helpful for anybody that's either a first time CEO or, or somebody aspiring to step up into that role. We've sort of teased the potential of talking about the metaverse, and I feel we should, given you're the CEO of a metaverse company. Uh, as I said, I, I'm no expert here, and I'm sure our listeners, there are going to be people uh, like me who are pretty ignorant. So, can you just tell us a bit about what the metaverse is and does, and how does it all work? And I guess, Particularly in relation to Improbable and the work you're doing, we also just explore that and a, and a bit of the exciting things that are on the horizon for the industry.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so I think, look, it's absolutely worth pointing out, James, that the the metaverse is a term that that means many things to many people. You know, I'm not I'm not going to go into the sort of the the history of the term, but you know, if you 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 look back, and it's a term that really emerged in the, in the early 90s out of a book called Snow Crash uh, that started to kind of understand and start to explain what a, in a fictional sense, what the metaverse could mean. So I'll explain this through sort of my lens. But the first thing I say is I absolutely don't own a monopoly on on the description of the metaverse. And I think it's something that dramatically will evolve as new types of technology come to bear. And I'll I'll try and touch a bit more on those. But practically, I define the metaverse as a new type of immersive, rich, and I mean, fundamentally meaningful shared virtual experience. Where value can be exchanged between participants and across many diverse virtual worlds that will interact seamlessly with each other. So, so I think there are three themes here. There's the it's a new type of of, of, of meaningful experience. It's a it's a virtual experience where people will genuinely derive human meaning and will want to build relationships and will want to exist and enjoy that virtual experience in the same way that it, they exist and enjoy in the real world. I think the second theme is, is the metaverse will demonstrate the exchange of value. So the ability to actually to make money, to exchange goods, to conduct a genuine exchange of value. And that's, that's made possible by and sort of legitimized by blockchain technology. And I think the, the final piece is that, is that the metaverse in, in, in our mind and in Probable's mind is really all about the plumbing the technology that runs under the hood of these virtual experiences which enables you to bring lots of different diverse virtual worlds because we won't all want to experience the same metaverse we'll want to experience our own in you know, our own flavor of of the metaverse our own types of virtual worlds which will no doubt in the first instance be built on existing ip so maybe there's a lord of the rings virtual world or a harry potter virtual world or a you know I'll come back to a sport analogy you know a ashes cricket virtual world you know perhaps where we always beat the australians i don't know but you want to be able to interact between those virtual worlds you know they, they, they can't exist in isolation the metaverse is a combination of those virtual worlds the ability to move seamlessly between them and then have that value exchange those owned assets Made possible by the immutability of the blockchain to transfer between these virtual worlds, and therefore, much like the sort of the notion of property ownership in the real world, you know we can take what we own with us what we own is is a you know is is something that doesn't change when we sort of change our you know as we as we travel or move around so I think that's something that is really important. This has profound implications for the military. You know being able to capture the rich and immersive nature of of the real world and the you know that 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 sort of sense of the complexity of the real world in you know in a in a virtual experience and and then having the plumbing under the hood to be able to update that very quickly and modify it and have different people contribute to it and then to collaborate more effectively you know to be able to collaborate with lots of different people you know, getting thousands of people into a virtual stadium to experience a virtual concert, right, or a a virtual sporting event, it's the same underpinning technology, which will transform and indeed is transforming how the military train for urban combat, where lots of stuff is happening in a very tight space, geographically, and when lots of activity is happening, there's a heavy compute load on the system. And that's something that where there are direct crossovers between the entertainment industry and the, and the sense of community and togetherness and the same underpinning foundational technology,
1: which will enable our, our friendly militaries to get better at, at operating in urban environments it's absolutely remarkable and, and incredible how the technology has evolved and how this what felt like a kind of dystopian not going to be a reality is suddenly something that is at the forefront of um, you know major industries and innovation in a way that i, I personally never envisaged and so i I'd, I'd imagine for some people that's very scary but for others it's just unlocking incredible opportunity and so exciting and i, I can yeah, I know from people at Improbable what a, what a cool place to work it is. Um, and it's kind of a nice segue into my next, just the the final part of our conversation. Where I just wanted to talk a bit about culture and building teams because, you know, in order to achieve the big ambitions that a VC-backed business like Improbable has, uh, you need to be able to attract the best, retain the best and create an environment that those sorts of talents can thrive. I love the company values that people have, you know, uh, reach for the impossible, relentless humility, action over fear, improvement over comfort. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what they mean to you, how you put them into practice day to day as a leader and and for the team? And also, uh, selfishly, I'm interested how you, from a recruitment perspective, how you test for that in an interview process. Sure. Okay. So, so I
0: think the first thing is, you know, our, our company values are deliberate. I think, which which sounds, but you know, we've defined them. We've te- spent time thinking about the type of target culture that we we want to create, and fundamentally, all of them boil down to something really basic, which is how at the company we expect to be treated, and how we expect our people to treat each other and also how how to behave with our customers and those who are inter- our partners that interact with us. You know, in my mind, culture is when it really boils down to it, it is its behaviors. It's how you actually manifest your own behavior in a workplace environment. And then your values are there to to help set the rules of the road for what you want those behaviors to be and what and how you want to what behaviors you want to endorse what behaviors you want to encourage in in people so that's the first thing i say when it comes to kind of unpacking our values you know relentless humility is is all about it's about assuming good intent it's about um you know giving the benefit of the doubt to people and, and kind of always doing what's most important for the mission and people who demonstrate relentless humility they're they're active listeners they 're vocal about mistakes, they stay grounded. they recognize their own their own fallibility and where they they have their own limitations it 's similar to a kind of um, an Amazon leadership trait, which I think is sort of strong opinions weakly held. So, you know, we want people to have the safety to express themselves, but we also want them to have the humility to recognize where, you know, better ideas exist and then to kind of embrace change. Um, and that kind of gets me onto the second one, improvement over comfort. You know, this is this is about constant self-improvement. So curiosity, thoughtfulness, an ability to recognize that, that you can always learn more. And, you know, it's sort of okay not to know, but it's not okay not to learn, I think is, is one of the ways I would kind of couch that action over fear. I think this is this is huge because when you're in an environment where you know th- there's no point in hiring fantastic people if you don't free them to make decisions effectively and to own those decisions themselves and to help them, you know, feel empowered to make Decisions quickly. You know, part of the advantage that tech companies have is simply speed. We can work faster than potential competition because we're leaner and we're smaller. And it reminds me of of this value. reminds me of something from the military actually that that we call mission command, which is essentially a way of managing where you set clear goals but you don't tell your organization how to achieve those goals. You empower them to have the resources and the time and the space to go and work out the best way of achieving that outcome. So you become very goals-driven as an organization. So to achieve effective action over fear, you need to provide this safe environment on which people can, can try stuff and fail but also they feel empowered to deliver a goal. But then you've also got to set clear goals and, and set clear expectations. I think that's sort of at the foundation of our core company values. And, you know, we, we're constantly, the, I mean, the final area is, is, is aiming for the impossible. So being in a position where we're always trying to to drive to deliver extraordinary things and, you know, we believe we can get there. There's a strong belief in in knowing that that just because a problem hasn't been solved before, that, that it can't be solved or that we can't get there in the end. And I think, I think that's incredibly important because that's quite inspiring. It gives people the inspiration to recognize that really difficult barriers can be overcome. And part of reinforcing that value is through storytelling. It's through institutional memory and through history and, and getting people to express when we've kind of done this in the past you know, like yeah, a couple of years ago, we had this big problem, and it was a bit of a crisis. But we came together and we overcame it. And you know, we developed a new technology, and we got it patented. And now, you know, that's opened up a new opportunity. For, you know, it's those type of experiences which I think are a really crit- critical for, from a values and, and a culture perspective. So you've got to set the culture, you've got to define what what you think that that target culture is. You've then got to set those values as the rules of the road, and then. I think the final point of your question, James, was how to measure these, you know, and, and how to assess for them. And I think what's really important during our, you know, our interview process is that and some of the best advice I ever get is, you know, higher for values, higher for strengths, higher for, for cultural fit. We would much rather take an individual in who is a real strong cultural and values fit for our organization but perhaps doesn't quite have the the skills that that we were looking for and then train and upskill people in that environment because you know you can take someone who's who is you know a real believer in the mission you know will fit in as part of the organization and then you can involve those skills over time so So how do we really get after that? Well, I think the first thing is to ensure that at every level of the interview process people are looking for signals that individuals have demonstrated these type of behaviors in the past. So that every single time we go through an interview process, the the interviewing team, they understand they're not just looking for for skills and abilities, they're looking for values for, that they're always asking themselves the question, you know, would I like to work with this individual? Can I imagine them in my team? You know, how are they going to, given my current circumstances right now, the work I'm working on, how do we think they would respond to those circumstances, recognizing that there'll be positive stuff happening and there'll be challenging stuff happening. And how can they sort of, you know, how will they fit into that organization? And then the final level is is a final fit. So, you know, I conduct all of our final fits still for all, all our sort of senior and executive individuals. And I have a, a small trusted cadre of executives that do other final fits. And that is purely about cultural fit for the organization. Are people able to demonstrate empathy, humility, you know, the demonstration of values? Are they joining for the right reasons? Is this The job, as opposed to a job, and I think you know we've got relatively good at at calibrating those. And then the the final thing I'd say is you've got to reward and reinforce, you know, good values. You know, when people demonstrate the behaviours we expect, we reward those behaviours. You know, we reward with um, you know tangible tangible rewards. We provide recognition to people and say, yeah, that's a fantastic example of demonstrating our values in this context. And then your values become part of the DNA. They're not just something that. You stick up on a poster and, you know, I stand up at the Christmas party and, you know, aren't we good at, you know, these are our values of business. Aren't they important? And then put them in a drawer for the rest of the year. These are things that are, you know, they're part of our
1: DNA. And that's, I think, is, is critical to a healthy culture. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Joe. And I think that's super helpful for anybody that's... Uh... Thinking of applying for roles at Improbable, interviewing for roles at Improbable, just to see what really matters to you. And I'm sure also those qualities and the way you assess for them is something other founders and leaders can hopefully use as they interview talent for their own businesses. Sadly, we're at an end, Joe, and I've got three final questions that I wanted to wrap up, but I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. So, in one sentence, what does the future hold for Improbable Defence? We're all
0: about delivering mission value to our customers. So I would expect us to be deepening the delivery of existing mission value and broadening
1: the scope of that mission to other parts of the national security community. Fantastic. And if you could be mentored by anybody dead or alive, who would it be and why?
0: Oh man. Uh I don't know. I think maybe this topic. I've been thinking lots about communication recently and the importance of more effective internal communication. You know, we're about 300, just over 300 people now. And it's, as you get bigger, you realize that you have to communicate more regularly. You've got to get ideas across really succinctly and really simply for the organization to really understand and and set effective priorities. And I find that really hard. You know, it's a really difficult thing. So I would love mentorship from a you know incredible communications expert and and the the first one to jump my head is probably you know given my background in sort of you know politics and economics probably someone like alistair campbell who you know was just you know inc- incredible at dealing with the media but also fantastic at, at, at shaping really complex policy that new labor were were delivering at the time and, and being able to articulate that and put the right words into tony blair's speeches and and um and into his sort of engagements to get the message across. So, um, yeah, I, that would be that would be
1: welcome. Yeah, I mean, Alistair Campbell's been some of these people have requested for the podcast. So if I if I manage to get him on, then I'll uh, I'll definitely mention to him that uh, there's a there's a mentee in waiting. Brilliant. And finally, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you would like to pass on to our listeners? It's all about the people. At the end of
0: the day, businesses of people. In the military you are taught first and foremost to look after your people. And when I say people in a business sense, I don't just mean your employees, I mean your customers. You know, putting your customers at the heart of your world is critical to being successful. It sounds so simple. It sounds like something, of course, businesses should be doing. But I think it's really it's really easy when you're in a tech company and you're constantly thinking about the product, you're constantly thinking about the technology challenges to lose sight of of ultimately... technology is not valuable. It won't change the world unless it's solving a problem. And that problem ultimately stems from building value for your customers. You must always
1: build value and create value. And to do that, you've got to put them at the heart of your world. A brilliant place to end it. I couldn't agree more with so much of what you said, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing your really fascinating career story, the amazing work you're doing at Probable Defense. It's been packed full of tangible advice and uh, yeah just great mentorship so thank you very much for joining us
0: James you're very welcome have a great day look forward to connecting soon
1: thank you so much for joining today's episode I really hope you got a lot out of it if you've enjoyed the series so far it would help us out a lot if you could leave us a review on any of your favorite podcast platforms Plus, if you have any suggestions for any future guests or sponsors of the podcast, then please do drop us a line at info at jbmc.co.uk. And don't forget to tune back in next week for an extra treat to finish off this series. You won't be getting just one 40-minute mentor, but two. On Monday, I'm joined by Eleanor Kay, the Executive Director of Newton Ventures Programme a joint venture between London Business School and the VC Local Globe. Here's a sneak preview of our conversation.
2: I was working ridiculous hours, six days a week, working with some of the smartest and most difficult people, sometimes not coming home for more than a few hours or even days at a time as I was traveling so much. But it was so impactful on me as a person. Can you be taught venture? And here i am i'm two years in i can talk pretty competently around venture capital how can we build a cohort of people who are bringing diverse opinions are challenging everyone's sort of best practices and ways of thinking and bring the greatest minds into the room essentially if you don't feel like you belong at the top then you're not going to stay around very long and i'm a white woman and you know i have so much privilege with being white But as I spoke about earlier on, that that privilege was taken away when I decided to have children.